God, thank you for your glory that is established on the earth, that we get to praise you fully and completely, and that you're worthy of praise. Good morning, High Point. Thank you, worship team. My name is Femi Shakoya. I'm one of the elders here, and I'll be reading the scripture for today. Scripture for today can be found in Philippians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. It can be found on page 1786 in the Pew Bible in front of you. You almost made it through 2019. You're really close. Philippians chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. No, I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Morning, everybody. I'm the director of kids ministry here at High Point Church. My name is John Sigatowski. That's right. Um, so, uh, parents, I take care of your children, and I just want you to know that I'm praying for you. Um, but I'm I'm glad to be here with you this morning. And today we're going to be talking about something through the uh, book of Philippians, specifically in chapter three, where Paul focuses in on something very specific that he wants us to understand. And this is something that I think a lot of us want more of. This is something that a lot of us don't feel enough of. It's something that we all want to experience more of. We've had a couple series specifically based on this topic. I know it's something in my life that I love it when I have it, and I can feel it when I don't have it, and other people around me feel it when I don't have it. The thing that we're going to be talking about today, the thing we're going to be talking about today is joy. At the beginning of this chapter, Paul says to the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. That's the thing we're going to be talking about. If you've been around Christianity for any amount of time, you know that joy plays a really central role in the Christian experience. That not only is it just something that we want more because we're humans and we want more joy, but it's something very specific to the Christian experience. It's all over the Bible. Just a cursory Google search will lead you to a couple blogs like these. 47 Bible verses about joy. 100 Bible verses about joy, 21 Bible verses about joy. It's all over the Bible. And what's, um, what's maybe frightening or what 
What puts an extra burden on us is the ways that the Bible talks about joy is it really ups the ante on us. So not only is it just something that we want because we want to be joyful, but there's something in particular that the Bible is describing joy as that really ups the ante on us since we're commanded to have joy. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 16.11 says, At his right hand, at God's right hand, there is fullness of joy. John 16.22 says that, Um, Jesus says that no one will take away your joy. Whose joy fulfills those criteria? No one will take away your joy. Do you know anybody? (laughs) Then somebody has probably taken away your joy. This is something that all of us struggle to experience, that we we don't live up to the kind of criteria that the Bible is talking about with regards to our joy, that it, it characterizes it with a certain amount of permanence, a certain amount of power in our lives. This is something that we are commanded to have, that we need to have, and the things that describe it are things that don't often describe the kind of joy that we experience in our life. So, luckily, today, we are in the book of Philippians. Philippians is the most joyful book in Paul's writings in the New Testament. I, am, I did the math on this, and in your Bibles, in the pew in front of you, there is approximately 2.7 joy per page in the book of Philippians. Um, the second highest is 2 Corinthians with 0.9 joy per page, and then the average of Paul's writings in the New Testament comes at about 0.5 joy per page. Um, I had more about this that I wanted to share with you guys that was going to be amazing, but I was talking with Luke Zeke yesterday, and he recommended that I not share it. So if that is a disappointment to you, he's right there, and you can talk to him. You can talk to him after the service. Um, But what's striking in particular about the fact that there's so much joy throughout the book of Philippians is when Paul is writing this book, he's not in the best of circumstances. When he's writing this book, he's he's under house arrest in Rome, writing to this Philippian church. And and sure, it's just house arrest. But it's still not something that was a particularly good experience. Throughout the beginning of the book of Philippians, he's describing his circumstances in a couple different ways. He, he's kind of waffling back and forth, not sure whether or not he's going to die soon. He describes himself as being in chains. He describes himself as surrounded by these people who are trying to stir up trouble for him, and he can't go anywhere to leave it. It's not like he's on house arrest, so he just gets to hang out on the weekends and watch Disney Plus and see the what's happening with Baby Yoda next. Um, you don't get that joke? Find a friend with Disney Plus, watch The Mandalorian. Um, Plus, Paul's whole drive is to do ministry. Over and over in the Bible, Paul talks about wanting to go to places where the Bible has not been preached before, where nobody has heard the gospel before. And that's his drive, is to go places and start churches and encourage churches. And he's stuck here in Rome, not sure if he's going to live, in chains, and not able to do that thing that he feels called to. And so it's striking, it's striking that right now, Right now, he's talking about all the different ways that he has joy. Throughout Philippians, before we get to this chapter, in chapter 3, and we get to this point where Paul is going to directly tell us to have joy, these are some of the ways that he describes his joy throughout the book of Philippians. Paul prays for the believers with joy because of their partnership with him. He rejoices that Christ is proclaimed, even when Christ is proclaimed, at injury to himself. He rejoices that his hardship will turn out for his deliverance, He's convinced that continuation of his ministry to the Philippians will contribute to their progress and joy. 
Paul has joy when believers are united. Paul would be glad if his sacrifice for the sake of their faith, if, so that he would be glad to sacrifice himself for the sake of their faith, so that his ministry would not be in vain. And so it's in the midst of this that Paul comes to this point where he says, rejoice in the Lord. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and is a safeguard to you. So there's a certain kind of permanence of the joy of Paul's life where he fulfills some of those things that we, were ta- that we saw in earlier verses in Nehemiah 8.10 and John 16.22 where there's this sense that nobody can take away Paul's joy. Even in the midst of these circumstances where he's in this Roman prison where he can't do the thing he feels called to, nobody can take away his joy. And so Paul, throughout these verses, is going to share the secret with us. He's going to share the thing that we need to know if we want to have the kind of joy that would stick around for a while, that nobody could take from us, that would be fullness in us. Here's the secret. Watch out for the dogs! That is, that's right, watch out for the dogs. Um, it's surprising. It's a little bit of a, of a, a shift in pace. That he would go from rejoice in the Lord, it is no trouble for me to remind you about these things again, about how important it is, it's a safeguard for you. So, watch out for the dogs. What's going on here? Right away, he's attacking a group of people that clearly he's not too pleased with. These are people who have made it onto um, Paul's naughty list, if, we, if he has a naughty nice list. And um, these people that he's describing are throughout the Bible and throughout the early part of the Christian church are what are called Judaizers. When Christianity came around, a lot of people had trouble figuring out, okay, how exactly does Christianity, which has sort of sprung out of Judaism, how is, how is Christianity now supposed to integrate Judaism? What's that supposed to look like? And there was this group of people called the Judaizers who said that in order for somebody to become a Christian, they first have to follow some of the Jewish ceremonial laws. They have to follow rules about clean and unclean foods. They need to know the Old Testament rules. And one part in particular that the Judaizers were were, thought was very important was that people needed to be circumcised before they could become Christians. That that was a, a requirement before somebody could become a Christian. And Paul just rails against this mindset. He calls them dogs, calls them evildoers, calls them mutilators of their flesh. And he's doing this play on words where instead of, instead of them being the circumcision, they aren't circumcising anybody, they're just mutilating the flesh. That's what's actually going on here. And the reason that Paul is so against this mindset is because Paul understands that what's actually going on here is they're just trying to impress people by means of the flesh. In Galatians 6.12, that's the way that he describes this group of people that's trying to get people to first be circumcised, first follow food laws, and then be able to come into a relationship with Jesus. So So there's this group... Of Judaizers. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And the reason that Paul gives for why we need to watch out for these people is because we are the circumcision. Now, this is another thing that's a little odd to, to want to be able to say about yourself. Hi, my name is John Sikotowski. I am of the circumcision. It's like, strange. What's going on here is Paul is using something that's called a, a metonymy. Metonymy. 
What a metonymy is, is this is essentially, it's referring to something small to refer to the whole thing, such as this comic. Attention, all hands on deck. And then a bunch of disembodied hands come onto the deck. So what it's referring to is it's when I say, when I say something like, okay, the cost to get in is $20 a head. That doesn't mean $20 per head that you're carrying with you as you come in the front door. It means $20 per person. Or the suits on Wall Street refers to the lawyers on Wall Street. Or the White House said means, you know, that whole system of government. So what Paul is using here is he's using the circumcision to mean something bigger than just that particular act. And what Paul is saying is that we, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, we are already the circumcision. So we don't need to go through this action of being circumcised. And so what's actually happening when you do that is it's just a way to build your resume. It's just a way to be able to say, okay, yes, I have Jesus, and also I have this extra thing just in case I need this extra thing as well. So that's what's going on here, and that's the, that's the mindset that Paul is just railing against, that he hates. So Paul is saying, Throughout these couple verses, he's saying rejoice in the Lord. And then in order for that to be possible, you need to watch out for the Judaizers. And the reason why is because you already are the circumcision. You already are the circumcision. And if you get wrapped up in that game of confidence in the flesh, it is going to steal your joy. This is the first thing that Paul needs us to understand when he says rejoice in the Lord. And then later in, verse, or in chapter 4, he's going to say rejoice in the Lord always. The thing that we need to understand, if that is to be possible, is we need to watch out for this kind of mindset. We need to watch out for this kind of mindset. And so then Paul is going to walk through and he's going to explain what this looked like in his life. To go from this point where this thing, the... the building up of his own spiritual resume, how he had to set that aside and recognize that that was something that he was just doing to impress people, to impress God, to get himself into a right relationship with God. And now he had to put his security only in God and that that is the secret. That is the secret to his joy. So it starts in verses four through six, where Paul says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So we put no we put no confidence in the flesh, though Paul himself has reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So what is he saying? He's saying not only did he do the right rituals, he did them at the right time. He was part of the right people. He was in an esteemed tribe. He was in a Hebrew family. As regard, with regard to the law, he had the kind of knowledge, he had like the highest amount of knowledge he could. As for his zeal, he was willing to do anything to defend the Jewish faith, even if that meant persecuting the church. And as for the real earned righteousness that he had based in the law, he was faultless. He was faultless. If this were the game that we were playing, Paul would beat you 10 out of 10 times. Paul's resume is better than your resume, and it's better than the Judaizers' resume. And Paul is saying, look, I had everything that I needed if that was the game that we were playing. I had the best resume. You can't do better than my resume especially with regards to attacking the Judaizers. All the things that they, were putting, that they were putting confidence in, he had the reason to have the most confidence in it. 
He had the reason to have most confidence in it. But what he does at this point is he takes a turn. He takes a turn. In 7 through 9, Paul says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, <laughs> that resume, that cute little thing, it is garbage. It is garbage compared with knowing Christ. Take that resume and throw it through the paper shredder. And then once you're done with that, burn it because it is nothing compared with what he's gaining otherwise. And there's this important causal relationship. He considers it lost for the sake of Christ. He considers everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He considers his resume, all these things, all these gains that he had, all the ways that he was better than the people around him as garbage so that he may gain Christ. Most translations have a so or an in order that. Our NIV has just that, but that is a, a clarifier with the so. Um, but so that he may gain Christ. So there's this causal relationship between either holding on to his resume or holding on to his relationship with Jesus. And Paul is saying that in order for this, in order for what is going on in verse 1 to happen in his life, in order for him to be able to rejoice in the Lord, the place that that is found is in a relationship with Jesus. And in order for him to be in a relationship with Jesus, there is something going on here that you can't hold on to these two things at the same time. That he can't hold on to his spiritual resume and his relationship with Jesus at the same time. You need to trade confidence in your resume for your relationship. You need to trade confidence in your resume for your relationship. This is the dynamic that Paul needs us to understand. This is the dynamic that we need to go through in our relationship with Jesus, is to trade any confidence that we have in our resume for our relationship with him. See, there are two things that are important for a deep, good relationship. Two things that every deep, good relationship has. First is security. Second is shared experience. This is why so many people, after they, right after they get married, they say, oh, I, I never even knew her. And now it feels like I'm getting to know her. And it's like, yes. The reason is now you actually have the security to go deep enough. And then the shared experience that com that's coming after that is filling in all that space that you now have that has been created through the security that you now have in your relationship. There are two things that are necessary for a deep, good relationship. Security and shared experience. Security and shared experience. What we need to see about this dynamic and the reason why giving up your resume as opposed to your relationship is so important is because your resume is an insecure thing. Your resume is an insecure thing. Paul's resume is better than your resume. So, therefore, compared to Paul, confidence in your resume is insecure. And if it's about resume, then you're insecurely attached. And what do insecurely attached people do when they're trying to be in a relationship with you is they impress you. This is exactly what Paul's talking about is happening with the Judaizers in Galatians 6, 12. Is he's saying they're just trying to impress us by means of the flesh. And so what happens when people try to create a relationship through impressing with you, through trying to impress you? Let's think about this for a moment. Um, parents of 
daughters who are at least teenage years or older, who of you has ever had her bring home this guy, the insecure boyfriend? Who here has ever had this happen? Raise your hands if you ever had the, this guy come home. Or guys, raise your hand if you've ever been this guy. Um, what happens when this guy comes over is every single moment he's trying to say the right thing at the right time for the right reason, the right joke, laughing at the right time. He's doing everything just to impress you. And the feeling that you get as you're interacting with him is just sort of this deep sense of revulsion. Right? I've, I've, I've been that guy before, and it's not a good place to be. Um, so as far as the goal of creating a relationship, this doesn't work. Having, going after your resume as the way to establish a relationship, and then through that, feeling the need to impress somebody, it just doesn't work. Or I remember when I, um, when I was 12 years old, my cousin, who was maybe, I think she was 18 at the time, she had just gone skydiving. And at this time, I was very much in the mindset of the only way that people would like me is if I just impressed them all the time with all the cool things I had done. And I remember a couple weeks later, I was hanging out with a friend of mine, and I told him, oh, you know, a couple weeks ago, I went skydiving with a friend of mine. Except that if you look on Google, minimum age to go skydiving. 16 years. Just basic knowledge will let you know that what I was trying to do in trying to impress this person wasn't actually something that was even possible. And so the relationship that I was trying to create, the relationship that I was trying to create, didn't work. Just put it in the same Great. Do you want the old one? Actually, it's threaded through, so probably not. <laughs> not going to disrobe today. Um, so, this is backwards, I think. How's that? We'll switch it to that side. All right, so, um, what I, right, if you do even a cursory search on Google, what comes up is that the minimum age to go skydiving is 16 years old. So this thing that I was trying to do in impressing this guy um, in my relationship with him, the only thing that I was getting was we weren't getting any actual relationship. Because I knew that what I was saying wasn't true. Whether or not he knew that, it didn't matter. It, we, there was a barrier between us because all I was trying to do was impress him. And so there's this sense that if, all, if your relationship with somebody is contingent with how impressive you are, these are the kind of things that end up happening. So what, tries, what happens when you try to create a relationship through impressing somebody is you just can't have a relationship or at least not a good one. You just can't have a relationship. And so, what we're supposed to do here, the, the, the transition that Paul wants to take us through, is instead of having confidence in our resume, instead of having confidence in these things that we're doing either to impress God or to impress other people, we're supposed to have confidence in Christ. Philippians 3.9 says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is the place that our confidence is supposed to come from. This is the place that our confidence is supposed to come from. So how do we do this? What could this look like in our lives? What's important to recognize from the beginning is you have a resume. 
And Paul isn't saying that you need to get rid of your resume. At the beginning, Paul is saying that if the Judaizers have any reason to have confidence in the flesh, I have more. Present tense. You have a resume. The point is not to get rid of the resume. The point is not to start erasing things off of there as quickly as you can. The point is just not to take confidence in them. So maybe your resume is, are, are legitimately really good things. Maybe you have a radical testimony of how God saved you. Maybe you're a great, a legitimately great dad who loves his kids, who loves his wife. Maybe you read through your Bible every year, getting to know God more, getting to know his word more. You're a small group leader. You share your faith with your coworkers. You have clear theological ideas. You serve in kids' ministry, my, perf- my personal favorite. Um, you go to Sunday classes, or you're rich, or you're poor, or you're a Democrat, or you're a Republican. It doesn't matter. Whatever your resume is, it's not so much about getting rid of it. It's about not having confidence in it. And so what does that look like? Well, this passage says to consider those things nothing. And so what this looks like is it's, it's just humility. It's just being humble. It's receiving the grace that God has given us, finding confidence in that, and so not needing to find confidence in all the different things that we've done or that are going on in our lives. I think some of the ways this might look is maybe it would start with being a little bit more honest with one another. That when we're at a when we're in our small group and there's that thing that has been, that you've had on your mind for the last couple weeks that you know you need to share, that you know you need prayer for, but that you don't really want to share because what will they think of me if I share that thing? Maybe that would be the place where we could start to actually share those kind of things and be set free from them and healed from them. Maybe you'd be able to cut yourself a little bit of slack if you're struggling. Maybe you wouldn't need to beat yourself up because it's not about finding confidence in that thing you're doing. And so you could take a moment to rest on God's confidence and to not find confidence in appearing really impressive and appearing like you're not struggling. Or maybe you're, you're overburdened, but every single week you feel this need to volunteer. You feel this, I need to be in the kids' ministry or in the youth ministry or helping out with the various teams that are making things happen on Sundays. And maybe it's okay to just take a break if you need to and not need to keep and not go after that for the sake of image. Maybe it would remove that from being a factor in our lives. And I think, I think something else that might begin to happen in our lives too is um, some of us are just kind of obsessed with image. I remember a couple of months ago, um, I'm going to share something about Luke Zika, not because he's obsessed with image, though he is a little bit, um, but but primarily because of how it impacted me. Primarily because of how it impacted me. A couple months ago, he shared in a staff prayer time where he was talking about, um, he was talking about how on Sunday mornings he, was, he noticed himself trying to appear really busy. So like moving from one place to another really quickly or kind of not having long conversations. And I realized that this was the same thing that I was doing on a Sunday morning. That I was moving from place to place really fast. I was having short conversations with people. And there was some sense in which I was trying to create this impression that I was a really busy guy who really had somewhere to go, who was really doing impressive things that were important within the church. What Paul is saying is that type of thing needs to go. And if we would begin to, instead of having confidence in our resume, 
instead of having confidence in the things that we can say are true about ourselves, begin to have confidence in Christ, maybe some of those things would go away. And so the point here isn't to just eject everything that you're doing good in your life. The point isn't to take those things like serving on Sunday or like being a good dad or like caring about your family or like reading your Bible. The point isn't to take those things and get rid of them. The point is just to not find confidence in them. The point is just to not have those be things which are elevating your status either when you look at people or in the ways you're talking with people. So you need to trade your confidence in your resume for your relationship with Jesus. Because the game that the Judaizers are playing is going to kill your joy faster than you could have thought possible. So for the sake of our relationships with Jesus, we need to get rid of it. We need to get rid of it. The second thing that is important in a deep, good relationship, first is security, and second is shared experience. And this, in particular, is the place where joy is found. Paul gets to the point at the end of this section that we're reading, where he gets to this point where he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, to know the fellowship of his sufferings, to know him in his death, to know him in his resurrection. He gets to this point where he's effusively talking about these things, that no matter what, he wants to be able to participate with Jesus in these things. And he starts the beginning of the section saying, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in a way that is relational with God. And so the thing that he's trying to get us to in the end is this relationship with Jesus, that in this shared experience with Jesus, this is the thing that we can find joy in, and this is the thing that he's trying to clear up for us and get us to understand. So Philippians 10, 11 says, I want to know Christ. And then there's two ways that he lists here, the ways that he wants to know Christ. First, to know him in the power of his resurrection, and second, to know him in the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And the first one I sort of, I sort of get. So what, what Paul is talking about here is I want to know Jesus in his work. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know him as I see him save people. I want to know him as I see him heal people. He wants to know Christ in his work. And then second, he wants to know Christ in his way. So what does it look like to know Christ in his work? Um, my dad is here this morning, and he brought me to his work when I was maybe eight years old for a bring your son to work day. And I remember, I remember getting there, it's Silgan Containers is where he works, so if you ever had Campbell's soup out of a metal can, you've probably had a Silgan Containers can. Um, and I remember going to his work, and he works in particular at this research center. And this research center, there was all sorts of cool stuff that was going on. There were these different, like, warm rooms and cold rooms and these big racks that you had to, you had to turn this big wheel to move the racks back and forth to access different cans. And there's all this different research that was going on, okay, with this particular coating and this particular bacteria. What happens? Does it grow? Does it not? Is this good? Isn't it? And my favorite part, though, were these giant machines. They were maybe a story tall, and these machines were the machines that they were using to manufacture these cans, to test out new, new coatings, to test out new designs. And in particular, I liked, on the right, there's these little tracks that the cans would ride on that they would either to change their orientation or to shoot them from one place to the next. And I thought this was, was just awesome as a kid. But I remember what was important about that day is I came away from that day with a better sense of who my dad is. I came away with a shared experience with him. I came away knowing what he's doing when he's working. And because of that, I knew him more. I had a deeper shared experience with him. And so what Paul is saying in this, in this verse, in 10 and 11, is I want to get to know Christ 
in his work. I want to get to know Christ in sharing experience with him. I want to get to know Christ in what it looks like that somebody would be saved or that somebody would be healed of an illness. That somebody would go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I want to look what it's like. I want to see what it's like to participate with Jesus in his work. This is the place that joy is found. Is participating with Jesus in his work and in his way. The second one is knowing Jesus in his way. Unless you've gone through the fear of somebody about to pop out of the bush and gut you, you can't actually know what that person has gone through. And so to some degree, you can't actually know the person who has experienced that thing. Especially in suffering, there's this sense that unless you've gone through it, there is a sense in which somebody is sort of unknowable who has gone through it. This is why people who are going through suffering so often say that they feel alone in the midst of it, unless somebody is either there with them or somebody enters into it with them to travel through it with them. This is what we mean when we say, I feel so known by them as they're participating with me in my suffering, as they're participating with me in my way. It is a different sort of thing to go through suffering with somebody. And it is a different sort of thing to value a relationship so much so much that you would want to suffer with somebody in it. And it is a different sort of thing to have that kind of urgency to get to know Jesus. To have that kind of urgency to get to know Jesus. What Paul is saying is that even if it hurts, if it helps me know you more, I want it. Even if I suffer, if it helps me to know you more, I want it. Even if in the end I die, if it helps me to know you more, I want it. And part of why I can't wait for the resurrection is because at the end, I'm going to know you through it and I'm going to be with you forever. Paul wants to get to know Jesus in his way. And this is the thing that we need to pursue. This is where joy is found, is getting to know Jesus in his way. And so joy is found in the urgency of the heart that says, I want to work with Jesus. I want to live with Jesus. I want to suffer with Jesus. I want to die with Jesus. And because I'm found in him and have his righteousness, I cannot wait to be raised with Jesus. And so what might that look like in our lives? I think it would change the way that we did ministry. I think it would change the way that I did kids' ministry. If instead of coming into kids' ministry with a sense of, oh, I need to be here every week, it's important that I'm here, I'm, I'm in somehow impressing people by being here, I'm, it's important that I'm interacting with this kid. If instead of that, it shifted to, okay, I'm not trying to build my resume here in the time that I'm spending with this kid. I have security already in Jesus. And so that frees me to be able to just see and participate in the work that Jesus is already doing in the life of this kid. I can get to know Jesus better as I'm ministering to this kid who's in the gym on a Sunday morning talking about what he's been going through in, this, in the past week. It would change the way that we do ministry. I think something else that would change is it would change the way we suffer. There's this quote by a guy named George MacDonald where he says, The Son of God suffered unto the death, not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like his. What he's saying in that quote is that Jesus knows what it's like to hurt. To hurt. 
Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus knows what it's like to lose people. Jesus knows what it's like to die. And so as we're in those things, and as we're participating with Jesus in those things, we can get to know him more. And so that would change the way that we have joy. That would change the way that we go through sufferings. That even in the lowest circumstances, we'd have a chance to know our Savior better, and that that might become a source of joy, even in the worst of places. That we can get to know Jesus even there. And so freed from those things, it might also change the way we live right now. We would have the kind of joy that would be indestructible. We'd be so freed from the need to impress God and the need to impress other people, and we would know the thankfulness that bleeds out of us, and it would be infectious for the sake of joy. And we would be delighted We would delight in and we'd feel the security to be able to pursue a relationship with Jesus with full devotion, with affection, knowing that he's made the way, that we are secure in him. And now every moment of our lives can be another way to get to know Jesus more. This is the goal. This is the thing that Paul wants us to get to. This is the thing when he's starting on the 3-1 saying rejoice in the Lord and then walking through this process of how we need to clear out the way of these things which would otherwise get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. The building of your resume, either before people or before God, that needs to be worth nothing. You need to find no confidence in it. And then that is the place where you can actually get to know Jesus in the things that he's doing in the world, in the ways that he lives, That's the way you can get to know Jesus. And knowing Jesus in that way is the place where joy is found. And so Paul knows that the mindset of building the resume needs to be gone because we need to get to that place. And that's the place where joy is found. Um, An example I came came across of this that has always really stuck out to me is I was reading this book a couple of months ago called The Insanity of God by a guy named Nick Ripkin. And in this book, he's talking about this pastor in Russia named Dmitri, who's the pastor of a a small church, about 150 people. And one day, on a Sunday, as he was preaching, Dmitri got arrested by the KGB and thrown into prison. And he was in that prison for 17 years. 17 years. And at the beginning of every single morning, what Dmitri would do is, as the sun was coming up in his tiny east-facing window, he would sing a praise song to the Lord. He would rejoice in the Lord. And every morning of those 17 years, the 1,500 other prisoners that were around him would laugh at him, would jeer at him, would throw stuff at him. But for 17 years, every morning, he would wake up, look out that window, and praise God for the joy of knowing him. Then there was this time in his story where he was out in the yard and he found this eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And he took it back to his cell and he found something to write with. And then on that sheet of paper, he wrote down every single Bible verse he could think of and every single verse from every single worship song he had ever heard. And then there was this damp pillar in the corner of his cell and he stuck it up on this damp pillar and he rejoiced to God that he was able to give him such a gift even in a place like that KGB prison. The guards discovered, they put that up there, they beat him, they dragged him out of his cell, and they were about to take him out into the yard to execute him. When those 1,500 other prisoners started to sing Dmitri's song, 
Two weeks later, he was out of prison and reunited with his family. That story has always struck me because that is the kind of indestructibility of joy that is possible. Not as some comparison thing that, oh, how could I ever be like Dimitri? But no, how could I, how could I not? If this is what Paul is talking about, if this is the dynamic that we can pursue, that in everything, in every piece of Jesus' way, in his living, in his dying, in his working, in his suffering, in his being raised from the dead, if in all of those ways I can get to know Jesus more, then in all of those ways I can participate with Jesus, and in all of those ways I can have joy in knowing that I am getting to know him more. And so the dynamic that Paul knows that we need to get deep into our minds and deep into our hearts if we ever want to have the kind of joy that could be consistent and powerful and full is that confidence in your resume will get in the way of your relationship. And that's the place that joy is found. Confidence in your resume will get in the way of your relationship. And that is the place that joy is found. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book, the book of Philippians. Thank you for the ways that you encourage us to have joy, the ways that you teach us to have joy. God, we ask that you would work this dynamic out in our minds, that we would see the different ways that we're trying to impress you or impress each other, and we would desire to get rid of that because we would recognize that every moment that we're doing that, we are losing our relationship with you. We are not living in our relationship with you in the way we could. So God, we ask that you would, you would make us into a church who would not be focused on impressing one another, but would be focused on getting to know you. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.